Hey, you found us. This is a podcast of Carbon Valley Lutheran Church in Firestone, Colorado, just north of Denver. We here at CVL firmly believe that community is built, not found, that it's local, not virtual. So we encourage everyone to find a local church and help them build their community and be a service to them. With that said, we pray that these podcasts supplement and not replace your spiritual journey. If you'd like to learn more about us at CVL, you can check us out on Facebook or on the web at carbonchurch.com, or even better, stop by in person. I want to start in this way, a story of somebody who had Jonah Syndrome, and that would be me. 2006, I took a call to a little island in the Caribbean, Grenada. Anybody ever heard of it? You follow the West Indies, and right before you get to Venezuela, that's where Grenada is. And uh, the assignment was uh, pretty clear. It was a Lutheran church, not Wisconsin Synod. It was independent at this time. And the assignment was uh, to help the church make up its mind whether it wanted to keep this piece of land or not, or sell off the piece of land that they owned. Uh, The assignment was to hopefully start an elementary school. It would be a Christian school, not necessarily a Lutheran school. We would not import teachers from the Wisconsin Synod quite yet. We would use teachers who are Christian and already living in Grenada. Uh, The assignment was, and this was the creative part of it, Because in Grenada, a church can operate businesses. A church can be profitable. You can't do that in the United States. If you're a nonprofit, you can't make a profit. You can't operate businesses. There you can. So even though I don't know a thing about construction, I was going to oversee the church as it develops with the in-house talent of construction people. We're going to develop a business. We're going to be a construction company. I know a little bit about gardening, but not professional gardening, farming. So our second business is we were going to raise cut flowers and send them all over the world. I know nothing about tourism outside of I worked in an Italian restaurant on Mackinac Island back in 1974. Fed a lot of tourists. But that was going to be our third business that the church owned and operated. And the idea was this would give our members better jobs through these businesses. Therefore, someday they can support their own church. Follow that? Pretty clear cut. Interesting, intriguing, different than what you'd find in the United States. Oh, did I mention that there was a donor here in the United States that was putting $300,000 per year towards this? And in East Caribbean language, what's called EC, uh, the, the, the currency there, that's $2.1 million. Rate of exchange is 7 to 1. Doesn't mean I got a bigger salary or anything like that, but we had plenty of money. That, that was not the issue. Here's what the issue was. <coughs> on the surface at least, that we were 85% black and 15% white. And that's the way they talk in the Caribbean. It's black and white. Don't dance around the issue. Some people have different color skin than other people. That's simply what they say, black and white. The black population uh, of the 85% of the congregation that was black, most, or roughly half of them came from the island of Grenada. Uh, The others would come from the eastern portions of South America, other islands in the West Indies, and then the token Sri Lanka family or two from south of India. Those were the darker-skinned people. The lighter-skinned people, United States, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Germany, Great Britain. That was the congregation. Yet the racial, the ethnic, the socioeconomic differences within that group of roughly 80 people was, was not the issue. Here was the issue. The place where we stored our equipment 
as a church because we rented a hall above a dentist's office. That's where we met on Sunday morning. We only had that on Sunday morning. The place where we stored most of our equipment was in a house in a garage owned by a guy who'd been part of the whole communist movement. Anybody know that little trivia in U.S. history and war when Reagan sent the Marines into Grenada? Remember that? Just a footnote because it was over real quick. Grenada started to lengthen their uh, airport strip to a mile. That gave it the capability to land bombers from Russia and from Cuba. <clears throat> Reagan said, not on my watch. He sends in ultimately the Marines. There is a war. People did die. Houses got shot up. In one of those houses and garages where the bullet holes still were when I got there in 2006 was this communist-leaning member of my church. Had all the paraphernalia, said the most tragic thing that ever happened in 200 years of slavery and impoverishment and everything else, the most tragic thing that ever happened is that Grenada didn't stay communist. That's one of my leaders. A little further on that. One of the key prospects, he didn't join the church, but he came regularly. He was a spiritual Baptist. This intrigues me because I've never heard of spiritual Baptist. I know there's all kinds of Baptists in the U.S., but I've never heard of spiritual Baptist. What kind of denomination is that? Well, they're kind of Baptist except for this one thing. They followed Genesis 2 and 3 to a really strange conclusion. That when God gives you the ability to procreate, he means you really procreate a lot. And if you have to take on many women in order to procreate, well, so be it. <clears throat> so this key prospect and a major donor to the cause of our church has 11 wives, 21 children. I spent Christmas Day in 2006 with him. Intriguing. I can't remember all the names of my 11 wives, but I can name all 21 children. That's the key prospect in my church. The white folk? Very nice, classy British woman. She hated the Irish. I never let on that I'm a good chunk Irish. German guy that I played tennis with, he taught me how to play a little bit of tennis. Most tragic thing in his lifetime is that the Nazis didn't work out. So I got a communist over there storing my stuff, and a key figure in the congregation is saying, yeah, I'm a kind of Hitler sympathizer. And then the really big one. The vast majority of the congregation is black. A big chunk of them are from Grenada. The predominant religion there is Seventh-day Adventism, which is not some neutral little thing. It's incredibly legalistic. Follow this viewpoint, follow this dietary plan, or you ain't a believer. That's Seventh-day Adventism. <coughs> that was my congregation. And during the time when my wife and daughter weren't there with me because they spent a part of that year back here, I would sit on the porch of my nice house looking down over the port of St. George, where I would sit on the hillside with my best friend neighbor, the Rastafarian, who would smoke a big doobie before he heads off to work. And we would just talk. And then he would leave, and I would ponder, do I really want this group of knuckleheads in my church? Should I start over? It's Jonah Syndrome. I was very susceptible to it. Probably still am sometimes. So are you. You really are. We'll hear a quote from Luther that kind of nails all of us. And that's why it's before you today. We give assent that we will be built on Scripture. We're all about service. 
<clears throat> we will be generous when we make room for the lost within this church. Will we overcome Jonah syndrome? First thing I think we want to revisit is the water bottle. If we're going to be purpose-built for the lost, we better remember what it is that God is a merciful God. Background of the book of Jonah very succinctly is this. He's a prophet who functions in a time where the nation of Israel, which has been split into two countries, actually, ten tribes of the north, two to the south, they're about at the point where the ten tribes are going to be wiped out, but they're doing pretty well economically and politically. Spiritually, they're just mongrels, and God's going to wipe them out. <clears throat> But Jonah's operating about 30 or 40 years before that happens. So he preaches in the north, but he also preaches in the south. This is roughly 750 B.C., 750 years before Jesus comes. The other thing that we should note about Jonah <clears throat> is that he is a real being. He's not some make-believe mythological figure. Jesus himself verified Jonah's human existence when he said, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the grave for three days. So 42 verses, four chapters, pretty simple book. Chapter 1, unfortunately, is about as far as most people ever get in Jonah because they learned it in Sunday school. God told Jonah, leave Israel, go north to Nineveh, <clears throat> the most militaristic center of power, center of hedonism in the world at that time. You go up there and preach. Jonah says, good idea, Lord. I'm going to take a ship and I'm going to go east instead of going north. A storm arises. Jonah and the sailors conclude it's because that he's running away from God. That the storm came about. They throw him overboard. The great fish swallows him. Familiar with that story? Chapter 2. Nothing but a prayer. In the belly of a fish, Jonah prays. And he basically says, I repent, Lord. Whether I get out of here or not, I repent. The chapter ends with Jonah being vomited onto the land. That's literally the word in Hebrew. He was vomited onto the land. Chapter 3, he gets a chance again to do what he didn't do previously, and he does go to Nineveh, and he preaches along the lines of that old Protestant preacher all dressed in black, it would come into the western town in the 1860s or 70s wearing black and he's riding a mule and he's preaching gloom and doom. You seen those kind of movies? <clears throat> and he preaches that and he says, this is what's going to happen to Nineveh. You'll be destroyed unless you change your minds. And lo and behold, they believed. Chapter 4. And I think the most interesting of the chapters and it's the one we focus on today. Twice, Jonah is described in that chapter as being angry. Why is he angry? Because I proclaim truth to them, who the true God is, and they need a Savior. And Dagnabbit, they believed. Isn't that bizarre? What had he forgotten? <clears throat> Jonah forgot what I think a lot of us tend to forget when we read the Old Testament. That God is merciful, not just to the Israelite people, but God is merciful to all people. From Exodus chapter 3, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, gracious God, showing love and forgiving rebellion. That's spoken to Moses before God establishes Israel as a separate country 
with separate worship practices. Joel chapter 2. <clears throat> Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate. Spoken not just to Israel, but to a wider audience. The last 27 chapters of the book of Isaiah, sometimes called the Gospel of the Old Testament, is nothing if not a loud proclamation that when the Messiah comes, he will be for all people, not just for Israel. But Jonah, like most of us who read the Old Testament, forgot that. Verses 1 through 3. To Jonah, this seemed very wrong. He became angry. He prayed to the Lord. <clears throat> Here's what Jonah said to him. Lord, isn't this exactly what I thought would happen when I was still at home? That is what I tried to prevent by running away to Tarshish. I knew that you're gracious. You are tender and kind. You're slow to get angry. You're full of love. You are God who takes pity on people. You don't want to destroy them. Lord, take away my life. I'd rather die than live. And here's God's retort to that silly statement. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? The problem with Jonah is that he misunderstood what Israel was set up to be. Israel as a nation and Israel including its prophets like Jonah, they were to be a beacon to the world. That whole separate system of religious practices and the sacrifice, it points forward to a Savior who would come, not just for Israel, but for all people. Not just the Jew is saved in the blood of Christ, but the Gentile is too. Jonah had forgotten that. That Israel was to be a beacon of light to a darkened spiritual world. Here's that promised quote from our friend Martin Luther. No one begins to understand this profound and searching little book unless he discovers the Jonah in himself and then repentantly lays hold upon the boundless grace of God. So Carbon Valley Lutheran purpose-built to gather here like we are doing this morning around the Word, around baptism, around communion when we have it, around Bible study, but also purpose-built for the lost who live in this area, who do not yet know their Lord, and do not regularly acknowledge their Lord and worship their Lord. Because the Lord is merciful to all. Second thing you want to take out of this Somewhat related, it is a much larger tent that God has established for his people to be in. They will come from all nations. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. Believers will come from all ethnic, racial, nationalistic backgrounds. Because it's a big tent. And God's in control of filling that tent. And no human being dare get in the way of that and think otherwise. If you didn't follow the note or the little object lesson that God gave Jonah, let me give you a parallel one from Starbucks the other day. Most of my stories come from Starbucks. I'm in the Starbucks. I'm in the back of the line of people who are ordering with seven gerunds and four adjectives and very specific things about none of this, none of that, and three times of this. One of them is a lady got a little boy, I would guess one and a half, two, somewhere in there. She's got a lady pal with her, and they're going to obviously sit down 
have something refreshing that costs $7.95 each, and have a conversation. <clears throat> and the little kid starts screeching. Not because he didn't get anything, because he had snacks and he had a drink, I could see that. But he wanted one of the bananas. Why Starbucks sells bananas, I don't know, but they sell bananas. And he wanted a banana. Mom pointed out, you had a banana this morning, you're not going to get another banana. So he throws a fit. The mom says, fine, here's a banana. They get their drinks, they go sit in the corner. She sits the kid down in a moment of absolute brilliance of parenting. Starts sipping, starts talking, sits the kid down with an unpeeled banana. There sits the kid. What lesson has he just been taught? Mom's in control, and I'm helpless, because I don't know how to peel a banana. Same lesson, verses 5 through 9. Jonah had left the city. He had sat down at a place east of it. There he put some branches over his head. He sat in their shade. He waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God sent a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah. It gave him more shade for his head. It made him more comfortable. Jonah was very happy he had the leafy plant. But before sunrise the next day, God sent a worm. It chewed the plant so that much that it dried up. And when the sun rose, God sent a burning east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head. It made him very weak. He wanted to die, so he said, I'd rather die than live. But God spoke to Jonah. God said, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, Jonah said. In fact, I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. He learned the same thing as the kid with the banana. Somebody bigger than himself is in control, and without me running it and directing you, you are absolutely clueless. And what's Jonah clueless about? That it's a wider tent, and people from all backgrounds are welcome. Here's another story involves my travels as a mission counselor. It was not a mission church. It's an existing church in the East Coast that thinks they want to do a daughter congregation. So I spend some time with them. I make some presentations. I preach once in a while, work with them over two years. And I get there. I think it's like my third or fourth time there. I know the routine. I know how they go through their rituals and what their practice is and when they have fellowship time. I get there a little early. The only people there are the lady who's playing the piano. She's warming up. The pastor's busy in his office. I'm in the fellowship area where the Bible class will be held, setting up some stuff, going on my sermon. And a lady walks in with four boxes of donuts, a bunch of fruit, kind of like the spread we have out here. And I said, well, that's the fellowship lady. She's making the spread for what we eat after worship before we have Bible class, because that's the way you do things as Lutherans. You can't study the Bible without coffee and food. That's what's going on. It's her turn. She's got flowers. She sets it kind of pretty. She puts down a little decorative thing there. Nothing unusual here, right? So we have the service. We have Bible class. We have the presentation. I talked to that pastor from a distance later on because I left after the service in Bible class. Had a drive. And he said, you'll never believe what blew up today. I said, tell me what blew up because I didn't hint any of that. Is it something I said? Usually it is. He said, no. One of our prospects brought the donuts and the fruit. It's the lady that I saw. And apparently she had committed three grievous sins. She had not signed up to be the one bringing the food that day. She'd been coming to the church five or six weeks, saw that this is what people did, had no idea there was a sign-up sheet. 
She thought out of the goodness of her heart, I'll spend 50 bucks, I'll bring the food and the fruit. Grievous sin number one, didn't use the sign-up list. The biggie, the biggie, sin number two, she was not a member of the ladies' guild, and she went into the kitchen. Not making this up. You do not go in there unless you are a lady, and you have to be part of the ladies' guild to go in the kitchen. And number three, almost as grievous, she did not cut the donuts in half. And so some of the children tragically ate a whole donut. <clears throat> Crazy, isn't it? Jonah syndrome. I think that's going to happen here. Subtly, something like it's going to happen. It's going to occur to you. It really will. It occurred to me. As I sat on my hillside in Grenada. It's going to occur to you. I miss the days when we were just 35 people meeting at the school. It felt like family. Now we get a hundred some. I don't know everybody. It seems weird. Not sure I wanted this many people here when I joined Carbon Valley. Church was interesting this morning. Pastor Tim had a fine sermon. Music was good. But I noticed that family with the bratty kids, whose kids go to my kids' school, that they were there. Ooh. I liked the band the way it was. The foursome. And then the guy with the banjo. And worse, the harmonica. And maybe even worse, the accordion. He wanted to be part of the band. And it's never been the same since. It's Jonah Syndrome. We bought in a key place and remodeled a beautiful facility and partnered up with a school that's got a lot of people coming and enrolled their kids in that school and a bunch of them don't go to church. And some of them might wander in here. We have said we will be a beacon of light in a church that technically doesn't have any, I mean, in a city that technically doesn't have any other churches. That's still true, right, Tim? First and only church in Firestone proper. We've said that we would do this, not just so that we could gather around and experience God's mercy, but that we would be a beacon of light because the tent is bigger than just ourselves. Final point. Jonah ends in a weird way. It's unlike any other book of the Bible. Verses 10 and 11. The Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant. You didn't take care of it. You didn't make it grow. It grew up in one night and died the next. Shouldn't I show concern for the great city of Nineveh? It has more than 120,000 people. They can't tell the right from wrong. Nineveh also has a lot of animals. This chapter causes a lot of discussion among Bible scholars. When you read the Hebrew and the older English translations, it says 120,000 who don't know their right hand from their left. Is Jonah saying that the population of the entire city was 120,000? Or is he saying that there were 120,000 children there plus a bunch of adults? So that's debated. It's debated as to whether Jonah actually wrote this himself. Many people feel, no, he couldn't do that. How would you admit something to generations after you? What a dirtbag you were, thinking you were the only one and a few other Jews who were going to heaven. Jonah couldn't have written this himself. Other people feel, no, he did write it. By inspiration, God took his misguided thinking, put it down as a record for others to contemplate. In the end, it doesn't matter. What does matter is that God gets the last say, and God makes 
the point. And what's his point? As you sat on your hillside, Jonah, and your bald little head is miserable because the Middle Eastern sun is beating down on you and you got no cover. And I cause a vine to grow up and to give you some shade. And then I take that thing away. And you're ticked. You didn't cause it to grow. I gave it to you. The Lord gave, the Lord take away. It's in the Bible, book of Job. You're angry about that? You're not worried about the population of Nineveh, that they're all destined for hell? That's God's last say. Sometimes Jesus is called the second Jonah. Or Jonah's called the first Jesus. Because Jesus spoke in this way. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? In the end, plants don't last. Neither do cars, neither do houses, and neither do bank accounts. The only medium of exchange in which God operates for eternity are human souls. A second thing Jesus taught. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you had only known this day, what would bring you peace? But now it's hidden from your eyes. Since human souls really are the only eternal commodity, it is tragic when somebody dies and goes to hell. And so I think deliberately the book of Jonah ends in this way by the Holy Spirit's design as an open question. We never find out if Jonah got his head on straight or not. Doesn't matter. It's there for us to read and to say individually and collectively, do we have our heads on straight? I put before you a proposition. I wasn't here at Dedication Day. In fact, I'm hardly ever here, right, Tim? I am the biggest delinquent of this congregation. But I don't think we built this building only for the glory of God. Maybe some people have that idea. But the fact of the matter is, God didn't need a building to be glorious. I don't think we built this building just for ourselves. Because in theory, and actually biblically, God never said in the New Testament, buy land, build buildings, and meet there. We could have just as easily kept meeting in homes, meeting in rented facilities, and still been the church without this. The proposition? Christian congregations build buildings and are inviting and publicize not only for the glory of God, not specifically for themselves, but so that they might be a beacon for the lost. Purpose built for the loss.